The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Bradenton, Sarasota, Florida. Grace Community Church belongs to a family of churches known as Sovereign Grace Ministries. Thank you for taking the time to listen. At this point, uh, Jose Prado, who is a pastor, pastoral intern at the church in Miami, uh, Palma Vista, Palma Vista, I added an A in there, that's my attempt at Spanish, Palma, uh, that, that, that's right, if it's Italian, it's Palma, right, it's my Massachusetts accent coming out, well, Jose, we're so thankful that you've taken the trek three and a half hours with your wife and kids, uh, it's a blessing to see your family. You know, uh, many of us recognize them from Celebration Children's Ministry, you know. Um, but we welcome you now and look forward to the word that God's put on your heart. Let's welcome Jose Prado. Church, it's a, it's a pleasure for me to be here with you guys again. Uh, I was here about seven or eight months ago and um, met many of you. And uh, you guys have a precious church. You guys really do. Uh, just sitting there, looking at how you guys are honoring Scott and his family, and uh, just giving them a farewell. Uh, it's, it's joyous. It's joyous to see the relationship building that is going on in this church. And it's joyous to worship with you guys this morning. Uh, I, I, uh, I thanked... Um, um, Luke, uh, this morning, and uh, I thank you again, brother. Thank you so much for leading us in worship. That was great worship that uh, ministered to my life. Um, guys, I, I want to say hello from our pastors, Alpino and Corey Smidgen. They, got, they send you guys um, uh, just a great hug and a, and, a, and a kiss and a great hello. You know, in, in, in Miami, when we say hello... We always uh, give a, a, a spat in the cheek. You know, we always give a kiss in the cheek. So uh, receive that from Pastor Alpino and uh, Pastor Corey Smidgen. Um, also, I had the privilege of spending some time with, with Loom uh, last week. And uh, he is looking forward to being with you guys. He, um, uh, he was on, actually, uh, the the week prior to the last week when I was with him, and he was just, uh, as much as he could, just asking us questions about uh, what did you guys see, how are the people, and he's just looking forward to coming uh, next week and just looking forward to uh, serving you guys, okay? So let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2, and in our text this morning, we're going to be reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this for you. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. 
So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, when the, then, the, when, then the poor wine, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, as we have the privilege to come together as a church, as your body, Lord, to worship you, Lord, to gaze our eyes on you, to spend time with you, to speak to you and to have you speak to us. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. We pray, Father, that we would be able to see the glory of your Son this morning as we look into your word. That we would be able to gaze at his beauty, at his majesty, at his power and grace. Father, help us this morning. Help me preach your word and help my brothers and sisters hear your word. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, before we dig into our text this morning, I want us to set our text into the appropriate context. You see, the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, also referred by many as John the Evangelist. Now, the reason he is referred as the evangelist is primarily because of the evangelistic sense of his gospel. In fact, John himself gives us the reason why he wrote the gospel. And in John 20, 30, he tells us this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written on this book, meaning his gospel. Okay, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is the reason, that is the purpose why John writes this gospel. Now, this purpose is engraved throughout the 21 chapters that make up the gospel of John. In fact, we are immediately confronted with the reality that governs this gospel in John chapter 1, verse 14. It reads like this, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now many, back in those days, and even probably now in these days, Many would probably take into account that John was able to say this because he was an eyewitness, right? I mean, he was an eyewitness of the Son. He walked with him, he spoke to him, he saw him. But I believe that John wrote this eyewitness account, this gospel, so that we today, that's right, we today, Grace Community Church in Bradenton, Florida, June 7, 2009, could also be included in the amazing privilege of seeing 
the glory of the Son. He wrote it so that we can say, we have seen His glory, the glory of the incarnate Son of God. Now I want to give you a very precise definition of the phrase, seeing His glory. Okay? Now when John says, we have seen His glory, he's not talking about seeing Jesus with physical eyes. In fact, as we go into our text, we are going, we're going to see that many saw Jesus with their physical eyes, but they didn't see his glory. John is also not referring to seeing Jesus' signs and his miracles. Throughout the whole gospel, you will see people that saw the signs and benefited from the signs, but were blinded to his glory. My friends... To see his glory is to see him for who he is. Brothers and sisters, the glory of God is everything that he is that no one else is. The glory of God is everything that he is that no one else is. So when we are able to look at Jesus and we are able to see his signs and in doing so we are able to behold the greatness of God and we are able to observe his unsurpassable beauty, and we perceive his unmeasurable grace, it is then, and only then, that we can also say with John, we have seen his glory. Have you seen his glory? Grace Community Church, have you seen his glory? Now, I don't think that, it would, that I would be taking anybody by surprise here if I told you that one of my favorite things to do is to eat. <laughs> I mean, to my shame, all you have to do is take a good look at me and you will know that I like to eat. I love all types of foods, but I preferably like a well-salted, hand-smacked, tendered, slightly bloody, Medium, rare steak. I mean, I love steak. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, please give me a call when you get to Miami, and I will definitely be glad to show you what I'm talking about. But now, unfortunately, due to my love of steak and due to my shameful craving for it, I try to stay away from any types of advertisement, whether it's advertisement on TV or whether it's advertisement, you know, they send you uh, through the mail or or sometimes they send you uh, in the newspaper, you you have a steakhouse advertisement. So I try to stay away from all types of advertisement. And the reason why I try to stay away is because my hunger for steak is so strong that just by looking at the glory of a steak, in an ad, or in a TV commercial, my mouth starts to water to the point that I can taste the steak. Church, I believe God wants us to look at the steak that is set before us this morning. This steak is no other than His very glory. Not through an ad or a commercial, but through the very first sign that he displayed 2,000 years ago at the wedding feast in Cana. 
And as we look at this sign this morning, God wants to bring to life a hunger. Not the hunger of a growling stomach, but the hunger of a heart that longs to see His glory. And in His fullness, receive the grace that is upon grace. God desires for us this morning to taste the immeasurable, unsurpassable grace of Christ. Now this morning, through John, through his gospel, transports us to the end of Jesus' first week of ministry. Through this chapter, we, we would be able to see, in chapter 1, we would be able to see, uh, on the first day, we see John the Baptist, he gives witness to Christ. On day 2, John the Baptist encounters Jesus. On day 3, John the Baptist refers his disciples to Jesus. On day 4, Andrew introduces his brother, Peter, to Jesus. And on day 5, towards the end of chapter 1, we can see that uh, uh, the recruitments of Philip and Nathaniel, they're, they're being recruited as Jesus' new disciples. So as we, as we come to the end of chapter 1, we see Jesus revealing himself to Nathaniel as the one who knows him even before he ever meets him. And we see him assuring Nathanael in John 1, 40 through 50, telling him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see greater things than these. And then we start chapter 2. And we start in our narrative this morning. And on chapter 2, we see that on the third day from that day, meaning the day that he met with Nathaniel. On the third day, Jesus' mother was at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus is invited and his disciples are invited with him. Now, I know we all love weddings. Who? Everybody loves weddings, right? We all love weddings. At Palm Vista, for, we like to party, guys. At Palm Vista... We like to party. And weddings are a big celebration at Palm Vista. Especially what we like to call a Hialeah wedding. She knows what I'm talking about. That's why she's laughing. Hialeah is a city in Miami-Dade County. But if you have ever been there, you would know that Hialeah, it's another country within Miami-Dade County. In fact... I would describe Hialeah as the Latin capital of the world. Okay? So, the Latin capital of the world. If you ever plan on visiting Hialeah, I would suggest a few things. Okay? So, pick out some of these things. I would suggest probably for you to get a better tan. I would probably suggest for you to pick up a Spanish dictionary and start learning the language. And I would also suggest that you would learn how to dance salsa. Okay? But as much as we like to party in Palm Vista and in Hialeah, we fall short of the kind of partying going on in this wedding. Now, you can trust me on that one. I had a Hialeah wedding. But we fall short from the kind of partying going on in this wedding. You see, Jewish weddings were a celebration. They were important They were joyful occasions, not only in the lives of the bride and the groom and the family and the friends, but also in the lives of the whole community. 
Now just imagine with me the whole town of Bradenton celebrating at a wedding party that lasted a week at least. Now that's a party. And that's what's going on here on chapter 2. Now we all know that weddings are also costly. Now imagine the financial responsibility of this wedding. That responsibility fell on the bridegroom's shoulders. It was his responsibility to provide wine for his guests until the celebration was complete. Now in Jewish custom, wine was a symbol of joy and celebration. So to run out of wine in this culture was a shameful embarrassment, and in fact, it was a violation of social rules that was even punishable in court. See, I think the closest thing that we can come to an illustration to the disaster of this Jewish wedding without wine and still fall short is imagine a Hialeah wedding, all these loud Cubans and Latins, Okay? And imagine this wedding with no music. Well, times 100%. I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about. These guys are partying. He is, he is, the bridegroom is responsible to keep the party going with wine for his guests. So the wedding is complete. And the wine runs out. So at the beginning of our text, we see that what is supposed to be a joyful, filled wedding feast now is in danger of becoming a shameful disaster. A disaster that would bring much pain and dishonor to the bride and the bridegroom. It is, a, it is at the pinnacle of this tension that Jesus performs his first sign, his first miracle. Now, so far throughout the gospel, we have seen many give testimony of Christ, of Jesus. We have seen John the Evangelist, the writer of the gospel, give testimony of the word. I mean, he starts with that on chapter 1-1. We have seen John the Baptist give testimony of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have seen Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, who are Jesus' first disciples, give testimony of him. But for the very first time, we are about to witness Jesus revealing his glory. He is about to do his very first sign. Now, this is not just a mere miracle that we can say, wow. No, this is a sign that will manifest who he is and even give us a picture of why he has come. So let's get into our text. John 2, 1. I'll read and I'll stop on chapter, on verse 5. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. I believe that in these first five verses, Jesus 
It's establishing his sovereign authority. How do you see, what, how do you see that, Jose? Well, you see, on verse 3, we have Jesus' mother sharing the dilemma with Jesus. Now, it's obvious by his response that Mary was not just sharing information, but she was actually looking onto him for some type of assistance. I believe that we can also presume, by the fact that Mary is the first character John mentions on chapter 2, and the way she instructs the servants, that she was probably a coordinator of the wedding. She was probably helping out in the wedding coordination. And she was very aware and concerned of the situation that was going on. And in her affliction, she turns to Jesus and says to him, They have no wine. Now for us, that are only able to see the exterior, Mary's concern and communication of such seems genuine and appropriate, right? But take a look at the immediate response of he that sees the heart's and knows the motives of men. Jesus says to her, Woman, what did this have to do with me? Now, I think we wouldn't question this response by Christ if, he, if the narrative just ended right there, right? If it just ended at, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And he left it there, we probably wouldn't be questioning why he responded in this way. But... What makes his response significant is that Jesus goes right ahead and takes care of the problem by doing a miracle anyways. I believe that the Lord is reminding his mother and reminding us today that he is not counseled by men. He is saying, Mary... Like every other person, you must come to me as the promised Messiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Neither she nor anyone else nor any of us can presume to approach him on any other track but that one. What Jesus is telling Mary is, your relationship with me as a mother has no special way here. You are a woman like every other woman. My Father in heaven, not any human being, determines what miracles I perform. Brothers and sisters, Christ alone is the sovereign giver of grace. We can't come to no other and through no other. Christ pours out His unmerited undeserved favor on us, not according to the will of men, but according to his own will. And you know why this is good news? Because he is a merciful God. And in his mercy, Christ is the gracious grace giver. Point number one in your notes. Christ is the gracious grace giver. Do you know the gracious grace giver? In your times of need, do you come to Him? And when you do, do you come to Him as one seeking and demanding your own will? Or do you trust Him and submit to His will? Now in His response to Mary, He doesn't just stop there. 
He actually finishes his response by stating, My hour has not yet come. Now, what is his hour? We ask. Is his hour the hour of his first miracle? Well, I think we can really disregard that because we once again see that he went ahead and he does the miracle. Is it then obvious that Jesus is referring to a future event? Now, as we read through the Gospel of John, we find out that his hour is the hour of his death. When he says his hour, he is referring to the hour of his death when he will die for sinners and purify sins. In John 7.30 it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. On John 12.27 it says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose... I have come to this hour. On John 12, 23 and 24, it says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So it's obvious that when Jesus is speaking of His hour, He's speaking of the time, of the day, that he will die. He is speaking of the time when the Lamb of God would take away the sin of the world. And he's speaking of the time when the ultimate purification of sin is at hand. As John said in 1 John 1.7, he says, The blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. So how do we piece all this together? What is Jesus saying to his mother with this response? It seems to us that what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, No, my hour of, the hour of my death is not yet here. But I will pour out my grace as the gracious grace giver. At the same time, I will also give you a sign of my death. I will give you an acted out parable of my death and the purification that my death provides. And we're able to see that because we're able to see that Jesus chooses jars of purification to do this sign. He uses jars of water that were appointed for your purification, not for drinking, when he performs this miracle and fills them with wine. He is pointing to his death. He is pointing to the ultimate purification for sins that nullify and replace the Jewish purification rites. I mean, just imagine being at a wedding. Okay? And you're at a wedding... And you have lots of guests. And all of a sudden, there's nothing to drink. And Jesus comes. And he tells the waiter, go inside the bathroom and get some water from the bathtub. I mean, does that make sense? No, right? He is using jars 
that were there not for drinking water, but for purification. He's giving us a sign of His ultimate purification of our sins. Point number two, Christ gives unmeasurable grace. John 2.6 says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Not only is Jesus about to bless this wedding, guys. He's about to bless them with 180 gallons of wine. But on top of that, he's also going to illustrate his hour. And this is what Jesus is communicating. He's saying to them, I will take the purification rituals of Israel and replace them with a decisively new way of purification. My blood. And keep in mind, keep in mind that in John 6.55, Jesus says, the blood is true drink. My blood is true drink, he says. And two verses earlier, he actually says, unless you drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Now verse 9 on chapter 2 tells us that the water that had filled the jars had now become wine. Jesus had changed the waters of Judaism into the new wine of the kingdom, the wine of Christianity, the wine that he asks us to drink and that we as believers drink. Now, I don't want us to overlook the obvious. In fact, it's so obvious that I named the sermon 180 Gallons of Grace. You see, the gracious grace giver has gone into the wedding feast of unnamed individuals. And he has provided for their great need. One, min- one minute the feast is barren of joy and celebration. And the next minute, Christ provides unmeasurable grace of 180 gallons of wine. Brothers and sisters, may we never forget that our Lord has the power to change our circumstances, no matter how difficult they may seem. May we never forget that our Lord is ready to meet any of our unexpected trials. May we never forget that He will allow nothing to fail in which He is connected. What are the areas in your life in which reality tells you there's no hope? What are the barren, joyless patches of your heart that bring you shame and dishonor? My friends, Christ gives unmeasurable grace. No barrenness is without hope. No shame and dishonor is too big to be changed by the immeasurable grace of God into boundless joy and celebration. Maybe you are sitting here this morning with empty jars of joy in your life. 
Maybe you fear the possibility of your marriage falling apart. Perhaps the waters of bitterness and anger are rising to the brims of your heart. Bitterness against your parents. Bitterness against your children. Bitterness against your spouses. Your friends. Bitterness against those who's hurt you. Even furious anger towards God. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come and taste His unmeasurable grace. He can fill your hearts with boundless joy. He can transform your anxieties into supernatural peace. He can change the tasteless waters of your marriage and turn them into an abundant oasis of sweet, everlasting wine. He can change your self-destroying bitterness towards those around you and give you limitless forgiveness for them. My friends, He can do what He did 12 years ago to a 23-year-old rebellious, bitter, angry, selfish, self-exalting, liar, fornicator, lustful, drug-using, idolater like me and turn Him into the servant that you have this morning. Taste His unmeasurable grace. And you know what? Not only will you come to Christ and taste unmeasurable grace, grace in abundance, but when you taste His grace, you will find that there is nothing that can compare to it. Nothing can compare to the unsurpassable grace of Christ. Christ gives unsurpassable grace. John 2, 9 tells us, When the master of the feast, not the groom, but the head waiter, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water, who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the master of the feast speaking. And he's saying something. I mean, he's definitely right about the wine. It is the best wine. But he is mistaken because he is misinformed. You see, we all know better. We all know something about the bridegroom that the master of the feast does not know. You see, he's ignorant to the fact that indeed, he did not save the best wine till the end. He is ignorant to the fact that indeed, the bridegroom actually ran out of wine for the whole party. It was not him who saved the best wine for last. It was Christ. It was Christ who provided 180 gallons of wine. The best wine. My friends, that's the way it is. With all the grooms in this earth. You see, whether you are a single whether you're a youth here this morning, we are all married to the owners 
or the owner of our affections. Therefore, we have all have a bridegroom. We are all married. Who are you married to? Who are you bound to? Who is your bridegroom? Are you married to the deceitful bridegroom of your heart's desires? Lust, greed, respect, self-fulfillment, reputation. Or is your bridegroom the empty promises of the offerings of this world? Money, careers, possessions, good looks, fun. My friends, all husbands fail. And if you are married to one of these, though they may look like they are providing everything you need at the moment, the day will come where what they are providing is no longer satisfying. Ultimately, they will provide no more and your life will be as empty and shameful as this wedding feast would have been had Jesus not shown up. Jesus is the all-providing bridegroom. Out of water comes wine, and not just any wine. Unsurpassable wine, better than any husband can provide. Brothers and sisters, what we need most and are most starved for is a vision of an awesomely great God and to taste His unsurpassable grace. Come to Jesus, Grace Community Church, and taste His unsurpassable grace. If we only got a taste of His unsurpassable grace, we would not be so greedy and covetous. If we only got a taste of His unsurpassable grace, our eyes would not stray after lustful images and thoughts. If we only got a taste of His unsurpassable grace, we wouldn't get angry at our children and our spouses so easily. If we only got a taste of the unsurpassable grace of God, we wouldn't worry about our looks and what others think about us. If we only got a taste of His unsurpassable grace, we wouldn't spend so much time watching mindless and miserable television programs. If we only got a taste of His unsurpassable grace, church, we would not hold back from going to those who without knowing are starving and perishing without the wine of life. Christ is a gracious grace giver. He gives grace that is unmeasurable. Unmeasurable. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. His grace transcends that situation. His grace is unmeasurable. And His grace is unsurpassable. There is nothing better. Nothing tastes better than the grace of Christ. Then verse 11 tells us, this is pretty much John the Evangelist's commentary 
on the sign that just happened. Something has just occurred. And then we have John who's writing this gospel. He gives us this this commentary. He, he, He just gives us a commentary on verse 11. He says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus manifested his glory. Brothers and sisters, our Lord has manifested his glory, not only here in Galilee, but he manifested his glory at Calvary when he died for our sins. The glory of Christ, the glory of God was manifested. And we are to look to that glory that we may taste the unmeasurable, unsurpassable grace that comes through that sacrifice. It is when Christ manifests the glory of God that our faith is strengthened. It is when God gives us eyes to see the glory of Jesus, His beauty and greatness and worth. It is then that when we see, when we behold that glory, it is then that grace streams down into our lives. Grace to love, grace to rejoice, grace to believe, grace to live, grace to repent, grace to serve the living God, grace to serve your brothers and sisters. Grace, unsurpassable, unmeasurable. Can you taste it? Can you taste it? Let us pray. You have been listening to a message given at Grace Community Church in the Bradenton, Sarasota area of Florida's West Coast. For more information on Grace Community Church, please visit our website at gccnet.org. That's gccnet.org, or call us at 941-756-7558, or email us at gcc at gccnet.org. Thank you.